So I'm, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands to identify yourselves, but how many of you felt your eyes glazing over just a bit during that reading we just heard? <laughs> how many of you felt your eyes glaze over while you read the reading we just heard? Yes. This is my husband, everyone. He's a wonderful husband who read this passage. Um, there's a reason why the lectionary doesn't typically include uh, passages that have genealogies, because they're hard to read. They're full of names that we don't know how to pronounce, and people who we don't really know who they are. Um, they're difficult to process and to listen to. And we're also not really part of a culture in which we sort of expect to hear this sort of genealogy before the introduction um, of somebody important. And so uh, our eyes do glaze over just a little bit when we get to these passages. Um, and yet, as much as we may um, skim or uh, perhaps even skip uh, these genealogies in the Bible, they do serve a purpose and they tell a story. And, and I think we all understand this, right? Because if I passed out to you my own genealogy, you would probably be equally bored, I would imagine. Yes, just like I would be bored if you handed me your genealogy. I'm like, oh wow, there's a lot of people in there. Um, however, if I sat down with you, right, and we talked a little bit about our families and where we came from, we would start exchanging stories, and we would exchange stories that tell you something about ourselves, right? I, I might tell you about my great-grandpa Pease, who, according to family legend, ate a pie every day, half for breakfast and half for lunch. Um, he lived into his 90s, so all of my Wheaton College students back there, I think there's some longevity research into the connection between like long age and, and pie that needs to happen. I might tell you about my Grammy Marge, who was a longtime volunteer with the Red Cross and the Girl Scouts. And uh, if you know me, you know that I'm a Girl Scout troop leader for my three girls. And I do it for them, of course, but I also think of her sometimes, sometimes fondly, sometimes less so when I'm standing outside in 10 degree weather selling cookies. Um, but it still is part of my family legacy, right? Like, I would tell you these stories, you would tell me your stories, we would learn something about each other. And so even though we have to work a little bit harder to do that in, that in this passage, since we're not sitting down with Matthew tonight, it still is the same thing. When we read his genealogy and we think about the people who he's included, and we start digging into the stories of the people that he's included, we start to learn something about who Jesus is, and by extension, who we are, since we are also called to be like Christ. And so I invite you to jump with me into uh, Matthew's genealogy. Um, and I promise I'm not going to talk about everybody. I'm actually going to focus specifically on those five women who are named in Matthew's genealogy. So we're not going to be here all night. Um, but it is important to note how Matthew opens his genealogy. And in the very first verse, he declares that this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. So Matthew immediately positions Jesus as the culmination of the promises that God has made to Abraham and to David. Jesus is the promised king in the line of David whose kingdom will last forever. And this is also partly why Matthew arranges and compresses his genealogy into these three segments, one segment from Abraham to David, one segment from David to the exile, which is when the Israelite monarchy effectively came to an end. Um, and then from the return from exile to the arrival of Jesus. 
And so by listing all of these uh, people from Abraham to David and then from David through the kings and then um, from the uh, end of the, the Israelite monarchy through the arrival of Jesus, Matthew's genealogy tells us a story that we would expect for the Messiah, right? Jesus is the king, he's descended from David and Abraham. But the genealogy is also telling us another story that comes through those women in parentheses. And thanks to Father Kevin, that's, that's his sermon title. Um, he's fantastic at thinking up sermon titles, but the women in parentheses. And obviously parentheses, or maybe not so obviously, parentheses are not present in the original Greek. There's basically no punctuation at all um, in ancient texts. So some translations choose to put these into parentheses. Um, not all of them do. But one of the things that the parentheses do is it highlights that these are unexpected additions to the genealogy. In most genealogies in the ancient world, women were not included. Um, what matters is that the patrilineal line from father to son, father to son, and on down. Um, and, and women don't typically show up in those genealogies. So when we see Matthew list these five women, this ought to make us sit up and take notice. And the parentheses in this particular translation sort of help direct our attention to that. And it should make us ask the question, what is Matthew doing by including these women in his genealogy of Jesus? And I will say there are many, many possible ways that we could answer that question. Again, I promise I'm not going to keep you here until midnight tonight. Um, many ways we can answer that question, that even just to start from the basic fact that God is giving these women dignity and agency in a culture that so often stripped it from them. But tonight, what I want to focus on is how these five women in the genealogy tell the story of a Messiah whose power and royalty will never blind him to those who are marginalized, poor, oppressed, or wronged. And since Jesus is our king too, we can be both comforted by his justice and challenged to bring that justice into our own communities. And so let's take a look at these five women, at Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary, that Matthew lists, and let's see how their stories point us to God's justice. And I will say again, each of these women um, could have at least a full sermon on them. And I do highly recommend Mother Linda's sermon from the summer on Rahab as part of our Joshua series. If you're interested in diving deeper into these women, that would be a great place to start. Um, but briefly, let's look at these women and how they point us to God's justice. So we'll start, as Matthew does, with Tamar. Um, I'm guessing that for most of you in here, um, certainly this is true for me, Tamar is the least familiar woman in this genealogy. Um, and that is in part because her story is a little bit strange um, and it's a little bit difficult to deal with. So the basic outline of her story is this. Judah, who's the oldest son of Jacob, who's the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, needs to find a wife for his eldest son, whose name is Er. Um, and he finds Tamar and takes her to be Er's uh, wife. However, Er is wicked. We're not told what his wickedness is. Um, you can read the story in Genesis 38, by the way. Um, we don't know what his wickedness is, but it's so bad that God strikes him dead. Tamar, now widowed and without a child of her own, uh, is passed on to Er's younger brother, Onan. Um, and again, the story of Tamar, it helps to understand a little bit of the customs of the day. Um, the expectation would be that Onan would father a child with Tamar, who would count legally as heir's son, um, as, as the son of his elder brother. 
Um, Onan is not thrilled about this prospect, and so he refuses to have a child with Tamar, um, and because of his sin, he too is struck dead by God, leaving Tamar widowed and childless once again. And at this point in time, uh, Judah has a third son, but this third son is not yet old enough to be married, and Judah sends Tamar uh, back home to her father's house to wait until this third son is old enough to be married. And again, just a quick historical note here to better understand the actions that Tamar takes next. In the mindset of the ancient Near East, women are almost entirely dependent on the men in their lives. First their fathers, and then their husbands, and then finally their sons. As a widow in her father's household, Tamar is in an incredibly precarious position. When her father dies, she has no husband or son to care for her, and because she's promised to Judah's younger son, she can't just go and find someone else to marry. As time passes and passes and passes, Judah makes no move to marry Tamar to his younger son. And so we can imagine Tamar hearing her biological clock ticking, growing more and more desperate every day as she's waiting um, for a husband and a son that never come. And so in this precarious position, Tamar decides to take action. She hears that Judah, her father-in-law, is going to be coming near where she lives to shear his sheep, and she disguises herself as a prostitute, sleeps with Judah, takes his seal and his staff as a pledge of payment, um, so she tells him, um, and she becomes pregnant from their encounter. Now, a few months pass, and Judah learns that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who he had no idea was the prostitute, is pregnant, and Judah is furious. Um, this woman, who is essentially engaged to his younger son, even though he's done nothing to actually facilitate this marriage, um, is pregnant, which means that she has committed adultery, and he demands that she be put to death. And then Tamar sends Judah the seal and the staff that she took from the man who impregnated her, and is like, you recognize these? Um, Judah is shocked and surprised and then what he says next is equally shocking and surprising to us. Instead of condemning Tamar, he says, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son. Now this is the part of the story where it gets a little bit strange, um, because this, this is not the response that we would expect to a woman who does what Tamar did. And I want to be really clear that there's no reading of the story in which Tamar's actions are meant to be morally normative, right? That, that's certainly not the point of the story, right? Yes. Uh, but what I want to invite us to do is, is not to fixate on the sort of salacious elements of the story, but to see her actions as those of a woman who has no other recourse. There's no system of justice that is going to force Judah to marry her. Um, to his younger son, forced Judah to honor the promise that he's made to her. There's no social safety net to care for her. Once her father dies, she would be dependent on the charity of um, some male relative. She has no son to provide for her. And so she takes matters into her own hands and risks her own life in order to hold Judah accountable for what he has promised. And this is what Judah is recognizing when he calls Tamar righteous, that she is holding him accountable for what he's promised. And so when Matthew includes Tamar early in his genealogy of Jesus, he, like Judah, is recognizing her as righteous, as someone who holds the powerful accountable, and who will insist that those in power honor their obligations even to those without power or position in society. 
And as a descendant of Tamar, Jesus the Messiah fulfills her desire to hold the powerful accountable and to insist upon justice, and particularly justice for those who are disadvantaged in society. So that's Tamar. Moving on to Rahab and Ruth, who I'm, I'm grouping together, although their stories are, um, have some significant differences. But these next two women, who Matthew lists, um, Rahab and Ruth, are significantly both outsiders to the community of Israel. And neither of them are particularly obvious candidates if we're putting together a list of potential ancestors of like future kings and messiahs, right? Neither of them would make the cut um, if you were getting your ideal list together. Rahab is a prostitute from the town of Jericho who in Joshua chapter two hides and aids the Israelite spies who are coming into Jericho as they're just beginning their conquest of the Holy Land, of beginning to enter this land that God has promised them. And Jericho is the first city that they are coming to conquer. And these spies come in to check out Jericho um, and report back to Joshua, the leader of the Israelites. And Rahab gives them help. She hides them. She leads them out of the city on the condition that when they conquer the town, because she has faith that God will do what he has promised and will give this land to the Israelites, she helps them on the condition that when that happens, when the town is conquered, that they will spare her. And so that's what happened. When Jericho is destroyed, Joshua spares Rahab and her family. He honors the promise that was made to her. And she and her family are not destroyed, along with the rest of the town of Jericho. And in fact, they become part of this community of Israel. So Rahab, an outsider, part of the people who uh, are being conquered in order for the Israelites to take the land, is actually folded into the community of Israel. And like Rahab, Ruth is also an outsider. Um, and more than just a Canaanite, she's a Moabite. And the Moabites are historic enemies of the people of Israel. Um, and in fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 23, 3 and 6, the law reads, no Moabite or any of their descendants for 10 generations may be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. As long as you live, you must never promote the welfare and prosperity of the Moabites. So definitely enemies of the people of Israel. Ruth is also in addition to being part of this people group, she's a widow. She has no wealth or power. She's left behind her own family in order to support her mother-in-law, another widow, um, her mother-in-law is Naomi. And Ruth and Naomi survive on the charity of others. They, they don't, they're surviving based on what Ruth can glean out of the fields um, of others. And yet, Ruth marries a man named Boaz. He's a man of standing in their town. And Ruth and Boaz have a son. And at the birth of the son, Naomi and all the women around her rejoice because of the birth of the son with the marriage of Ruth and Boaz and the birth of their son, both Ruth and Naomi become fully restored and fully integrated into the people of Israel. And so these two women point to Jesus as one who brings justice in, I think, two ways. So first, like Tamar, um, they remind us that God cares for people on the margins of society, for women, for the poor, for those with despised or exploitive jobs. God honors Rahab and Ruth for their faith and brings them into the people of Israel as full members of the people of Israel. 
and not just full members, right? They become ancestors of the Messiah, which is a, a pretty high honor. And second of all, Rahab and Ruth point us to the fact that God's kingdom and God's justice are for everyone, not just those who are ethnically Jewish. And this is a point that Matthew makes over and over again in these first couple of chapters of his gospel. Um, Matthew starts his genealogy, as we already discussed, with Abraham. Um, and one of the promises that God makes to Abraham is that all the nations of the world will be blessed through his lineage. Matthew is also the gospel writer who gives us the story of the Magi, these wise men who come from afar and who uh, come specifically to honor Jesus as king, even though they themselves are, again, not ethnically Jewish. And so we see that Matthew includes Rahab and Ruth as part of his larger point that God's kingdom and God's justice extend to all people, which, of course, is very good news for all of us sitting here in you know, 21st century America tonight. There's Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Bathsheba is the next woman listed. And in fact, in the original Greek, Matthew doesn't even actually include Bathsheba's name. He simply identifies her as the wife of Uriah. Um, I gave you the New Living Translation tonight because it lists her, and I like having her name there. Um, but the NIV, as, long, as well as most other translations, reads something along the lines of, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And I will say that to our modern ears, this may seem dismissive of Bathsheba, um, and in some ways yet another silencing of her voice uh, when she already has so little agency um, in her interactions with David. And yet I think that by naming her as Uriah's wife, Matthew was reminding us of David's sins against both Bathsheba and Uriah. David takes Bathsheba for his own pleasure, and most likely without her consent, even though she's the wife of another man. And then when he learns that Bathsheba is pregnant with his child, David tries to cover up his sin in a couple of different ways, but ultimately he murders Uriah in order to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. Now it's true, David acknowledges his sin, he repents, and he receives God's forgiveness. And this is a beautiful picture of God's grace. And certainly, um, it's worth noting that Matthew includes a lot of incredibly flawed people in his genealogy of Jesus. And it's worth uh, appreciating that fact. But I do think that Matthew is highlighting David's sin. And I think this makes a very particular point about Jesus as the king of justice. Because I think Matthew was reminding us that even the best of rulers even kings who are men after God's own heart, as David was, are deeply flawed. They become corrupted by power. They're willing to commit injustices in order to satisfy their own desires. But the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, will not be a king like this. He will not be corrupted by power, will not commit injustices. Instead, Jesus will use his power to uplift the vulnerable and achieve justice for those who are wronged and exploited. I think it's also worth pointing out that, as in the story of Tamar, Bathsheba also reminds us that God stands alongside those who seek justice. Um, we oftentimes simply focus on the, the part of the story where David takes Bathsheba. Um, but in 1 Kings chapter 1, at the very end of David's reign, when David is growing old and ill, um, one of his sons declares himself king. And 
this is not perhaps surprising that someone sees a, a failing monarch and declares themselves king, um, but David had promised Bathsheba that her son, Solomon, would become king after him. And so when this other son declares himself king, the prophet Nathan, um, who's the one who held David accountable for the sin that he committed against Bathsheba and Uriah, the prophet Nathan goes to Bathsheba and tells Bathsheba to go to David and remind him of the promise that he had made to her, that her son Solomon would become king. And so Bathsheba does. And because of Bathsheba's actions, David makes Solomon king. And so like Tamar, Bathsheba holds a powerful man accountable to honor a promise he had seemingly forgotten. And like Judah, David recognizes that the Roman is in the right, um, and he honors the promise that he had made. And so even without naming Bathsheba explicitly, Matthew uses her to point us towards Jesus as a king whose justice will not be corrupted by the power he will have, and as a king who stands with those who hold the powerful to account. And that brings us up to Mary. Um, and I, I don't have, I wish that I had time to like dive into all of this. It's really fascinating that Matthew's genealogy ends with Joseph, the husband of Mary. Like that, that never happens in genealogy. So once again, Matthew is giving Mary this special honor. Um, instead of Mary, the wife of Joseph, it's Joseph, the husband of Mary. Um, giving her special honor in a way that's really unusual. And it is worth noting that Mary is different um, from the four previous women in some really significant ways. Uh, she's not an outsider like Ruth and Rahab. Um, unlike Bathsheba, she's able to actually consent um, to her pregnancy. But she is a woman. She's not a wealthy or powerful woman. She lives in a conquered nation under foreign rulers and often oppressive policies and taxes. So like the other four women who Matthew lists, Mary knows what it is like to long for justice. And we see Mary's understanding of the type of king, the type of king who brings justice that Jesus will be most clearly if we look at her song, The Magnificat, in Luke chapter 1. Um, and there she sings, God has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has set the rich away empty. Mary knows that she will give birth to a king whose justice extends to the poor and the marginalized and whose power will bring down the oppressive rulers and systems that cause so much pain. And so, as we've dug a little bit into Matthew's genealogy, we can see that through these women in parentheses, he presents us with Jesus, or through the genealogy, he presents us with Jesus the Messiah. Through the women in parentheses, he presents us Jesus, the king of justice. Because just as Jesus is the son of Abraham and David, who's the coming king, Jesus is also the son of Tamar and Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba and Mary. And this legacy positions him as a king whose roots extend beyond the geographical and ethnic kingdom of Israel, as a king who's intimately connected to those who are poor and oppressed and marginalized and wronged. This positions Jesus as a king whose justice will roll through the land like a river, as the prophet Amos describes. And this is incredibly good news for all of us. Because for most of us, um, at at least some point in time, the idea of God's justice is an incredible encouragement and comfort. 
when we realize that injustice is not the way of God's kingdom and that one day Jesus will return and right all that has been wronged. And it's especially appropriate for us to remember that during this season of Advent, where we are waiting along with those people of ancient Israel who waited for their Messiah to come. And we are waiting along with all of the people, all of God's people through the last two millennia who have been waiting for the return of Jesus. But in addition to being a comfort as we wait for God's justice to arrive, to know that God's justice is arriving, the idea that Jesus is a just ruler should also challenge us. Because even as we wait for Jesus to return and bring his kingdom to its fullness, we also recognize that Jesus has come, and that he has inaugurated his kingdom here on earth. We are citizens of that kingdom, and we are ambassadors of Jesus which means that we get to live as people who reflect God's justice into the world around us. And so as I close tonight, I want to invite you to think about how you might reflect God's justice in your own communities. This might look like including people who are on the margins. I know I, I was definitely challenged by our, our most recent sermon series on disability theology to think about what it looks like to fully include those who have disabilities into our community, but there may be many other types of people who are coming to mind. It might look like holding people in power accountable um, for the wrongs that they have done or standing in solidarity with those who are holding people in power accountable. And I know that there are many of you in this room who advocate for racial justice, for immigration reform. Many of you work with ministries that strive to treat those who are poor or homeless or disadvantaged uh, with care and respect. There's no shortage of injustice in the world. We all know this. Uh, but I hope that as we think about God as a God of justice, as we think about the stories of these five women in Jesus' genealogy, we can begin to pay attention to where we see injustice around us and how we might be bringers of God's justice. And so this Advent, as we wait for the return of Jesus and the full coming of God's kingdom, let's remember these women in parentheses and be comforted and challenged anew by God's justice.